Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Who were Harold Dean and Tina Gale Klaus? What happened to their daughter, Holly? And what new evidence has been discovered about this cold case mystery over 40 years later? Well, we'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. It might just be me, but there's something about fall that makes you just kind of want to get comfy on the couch, have a warm cup of tea, and dive into a true crime story. True crime is intriguing, but it also plays a huge role in helping families of victims get the answers they deserve. This fall, I can listen to, as can you, a new true crime podcast from Fox News Audio and the Fox News Investigative Unit that tells the story of the murder of a young couple, a mysterious cult, and the events that led to a new discovery 40 years later. Their missing daughter is alive. So how did the identities of the Klauses remain undiscovered for so long? Who was responsible for the gruesome murder? And where is their daughter, Holly, today? Here to talk me through all of this is the host of the What About Holly true crime podcast and investigative journalist, Christina Corbin. All right, Christina joins me now, and it is such a pleasure because she's sitting right across from me. So it's just so much better in person, right? Thank you, Abby. I love speaking with you. So I'm so glad we're finally able to do this in studio together. Me too. Well, this is crazy because, well, first of all, you have a podcast that drops for free on all the major platforms, so Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever you want. Um, It's called What About Holly? And it drops for free on November 4th. You have been working on this investigation for the last 10 months, and I am so excited to listen to it, by the way. Um, But let's just for our listeners go over who is Holly? What is this case that you've discovered? So let me start by saying that I don't believe in covering crime for the purpose of entertainment, but if you have a compelling cold case and your reporting could possibly move it forward, I am all about using the tremendous platform that I have to do that, and I find a real calling in that. And so back in January, I was reading a story in the Houston Chronicle about two murder victims from 1981 who were just identified as a young married couple, Dean and Tina Klaus, who had moved from Florida to Texas. And... In that article, it was revealed that the couple had a missing baby, had a baby Holly at the time that they were killed, and no one knew where this child was. So there were many layers to this story. You have uh, a couple, an unsolved murder of a young married couple. You have a missing baby. 42 years later, where is this this baby? And then you have other elements, including a cult um, and the whole field of genetic genealogy, which is fascinating in and of itself. So I decided to dive into this story back in January, and I flew to Houston and met with authorities, and I was the first reporter to get the entire case file on this 1981 murder, which was a really big deal because, as you know, as journalists, like, normally, like, you don't get 
access to that kind of stuff. So this included the crime scene photos, the initial police response, the autopsy report, everything. And um, I then, uh, from there, uh, began speaking with the family and the genetic genealogists, and we we sort of wove together this narrative that took 10 months to put out there. And while I'm working on this case, in June— it was announced that they found Holly alive and well in Oklahoma. She um, is a married mother of five kids. She has two grandkids. Um, she works at a waitress as a waitress in a town in, in Oklahoma. And, um, you know, she had this long-lost family she never knew was even looking for her. So there are just so many layers to this story. It's not one-dimensional at all, and it just has broad appeal. Like, there is something for everyone in this podcast. Okay, so let's just break it down, because you're right. There are so many different things that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Yours, you know, it's about Holly, but also you have this couple in 1981 who is— you know, they went missing or they were murdered. Um, mm-hmm. So can you just tell me their story first before we get into yeah. Holly? So here's basically the order. Here is the order of events. Um, in January of 1981, a man's dog found the um, badly decomposed remains of a couple uh, in the woods just outside of Houston. And they were found to be uh, 17 years old and 21 years old, but no one knew who they were. And it is very unusual for two people to disappear and to end up murdered, and no one knows who they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of the reason for that was that no one had filed a missing persons report in the city of Houston for a couple. Um, and also the remains were um, in a very bad state. They had been badly damaged by animals, and so the police had no idea. So they basically put together... Um, like facial reconstructions of what this couple would have looked like. And they put it out there into the media. But still, nobody knew who they were. So fast forward to 2011, when a group of forensic anthropologists decided to exhume the remains and extract the DNA to try to identify this couple. I don't want to interrupt, but why did it take from 1981 all the way to 2011 for that to happen? Yeah, so basically this group of forensic anthropologists got grant money in Texas to try to solve some unidentified uh, cases. Mm. And with the advancements now in DNA technology, I guess in 2011 they felt that there was a shot at doing that. Because in 1981, I mean, the field of uh, forensics was in its infancy. I mean, you know, what I learned about this case that shocked me was that in reading the report, there was a bloody towel and a pair of bloody shorts that were found at the crime scene. They don't even have that evidence anymore. That was They couldn't have tested the blood? It was lost. It was destroyed. They couldn't. They really couldn't. I mean, I guess, wow. I guess they could test the blood to find out, you know, what type of blood it was. But beyond that, they really couldn't do much with it. Right. But what shocked me was that no one thought to hold on to that evidence all these years for when now that would be... I mean, incredibly valuable to solving this case. So that was a shocker. So the parents were found, facial reconstructions were put out into the media, and still no one had any idea who they were. They didn't have family? The parents who were looking for them? I mean, the parents were looking for them, we'd come to find out later, but they were looking in the wrong place because no one knew this couple was actually in Houston. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's a little. Sorry, I'll stop interrupting. No, I just no, have so no. many questions. It's, it's a little it's a little complicated. So basically, this couple had moved from Florida to a suburb of Dallas for work, and their last known address was a suburb of Dallas. So, but they end up in the woods outside of Houston. So, like the family had no idea they were even in Houston to be searching for them in Houston. Mm, I see. To really get into the weeds of it, yeah. but basically, fast forward to 2011, and a group of forensic anthropologists exhume the remains extract DNA, and try to identify them, and still no success. And then, last fall, two forensic genetic genealogists, Misty Gillis and Allison Peacock, working for a group called Identifinders International, decided to take on this case. They thought that, you know, this young couple, you know, murdered so brutally was just— it was a really compelling case, and they wanted to be able to try to crack it. So what they did was they took the DNA, and they tried to um, upload it and match it with you know, DNA in all these different consumer databases. And ultimately, they built out these elaborate family trees, and they were ultimately able to link this couple to family in Florida. So they call the family in Florida in Octo- last October, and they say, we have we we found your son and and his name is Dean Klaus, and then in five minutes of the, the phone conversation, the family's like, "Well, what about their missing baby? Where is their baby?" And the genetic genealogists were like, "What? They have a baby? There's a missing baby," and that changed the whole course of this investigation now to find out what happened to their child and all kinds of questions came up like you know was the child actually killed and in the woods and you know scavengers made off with the body or they just overlooked tiny remains or did someone kidnap the baby um you know what happened here? and then murder the parents and oh, then murdered the yeah. parents so that that really was intriguing for me and that really distinguished this cold case from so many others that I've covered over the years. And so I jumped into this. Um, the Texas Attorney General, um, you know, is 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 deserving of a lot of credit here because he um, started this cold case unit um, that is totally devoted to cracking cases like this. Mm-hmm. And so um, you had this, you know, amazing investigator, prosecutor, Mindy Montford, who dove right into this with her team. And in June of 2022, they announced that they had located Holly and that she was alive and well and that she was living in Oklahoma. So then it's like a puzzle within a puzzle. Then you you answer that question and then it's like, well, how did she come to be in Oklahoma? Right. Does Who- she know that her parents were murdered? Or I don't even know if they're murdered yet. Right. Were who, they murdered? They were murdered. Who raised them? Um, you know, was she, are, are the people who raised her suspects? Mm. You know, her f- parents were found murdered in, in Texas. How is she in Oklahoma? I mean, there were just so many questions, and, and it became an even more fascinating story, if that's even possible. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. So the parents, they, the parents of, see, now you have the parents of the parents, the grandma and grandpa of Holly. Yes. They find out that, unfortunately, their son has been found in the woods. Yes. So I should, I guess I should say that 
The couple was found in 1981 in the woods right outside of Houston. Um, the male victim was beaten to death. The female victim had been strangled. It was a brutal mm. crime. Wow. It was brutal. And, and where does the cult come in? So in the course of the investigation, we find out that the son, Dean Klaus, had joined a cult when he was living in Florida before he and his wife moved to Texas. As far as the family knew, before he moved away, he cut ties with this cult. They didn't think that he was still associating with this cult. And this cult um, is a nomadic religious group that was prominent in the 1970s in this country. And I should note that a lot of these types of groups were prominent in the 1970s in this country. So when he cuts ties with them and he moves to Texas, the family thinks he's working in a construction job there, that he's, you know, having a nice life with his wife and raising his kid. Little did anybody know he had actually reconnected with this cult while he was in Texas. Along with his wife. His wife was also in the cult? Yes. That's what we have uncovered, you know, in the course of this 10-month-long investigation. And um, we learned that... Sometime in January of 1981, a person by the name of Sister Susan drove Dean's car from Arizona to Texas to give it back to the family because this was a group that didn't believe in any material possessions. So here's where it gets kind of complicated is that, you know, in January of 1981, Donna, Dean's mother, gets a phone call. Um, that they want to return her car. She's really weirded out by this call, doesn't quite understand it. And um, this woman, dressed in a white robe um, with two other women, shows up in Florida, at, in Daytona, to return the car. And according to Donna, they said to her, um, you know, your son has joined our group. He doesn't want anything more to do with you. And oh, my gosh, what a heartbreak gave the car back. So for all these years, for the last 40 years, the family believed that their son and his wife had willingly, you know, uh, cut off contact with the family and was living with this group somewhere. And that's the story they always believed. They thought and they were still alive. They thought they were still alive. Oh. And so then we uncover that Holly sometime in late 1980, was dropped off by two women in robes at a church in Yuma, Arizona, and that the pastor of that church raised her as his own. That person is totally not a suspect in this case at all. Uh, the baby was dropped off at this church by these women um, who didn't identify themselves and were part of a nomadic religious group. And so Holly was raised by this this man and then eventually ended up living in Oklahoma and marrying and having kids of her own, but never knowing that she had a great big family out there that was looking for her. She just knew that she was adopted in a way. Right. She didn't know any of her backstory. So she knew a little bit that her parents had joined a cult, that they had that that she was handed over to be adopted. Um, but that's basically it. And um, there, she is actually going to reunite with the family in person 
Um, because of COVID, they haven't had a chance to do that yet, but they're going to reunite, I understand, next Friday, November 4th. Wow. So when you say family, you mean Donna and so the, the parents of the yes. couple that was murdered. Yes. So when I mean fa- when I say family, I mean um, Dean's uh, brother and sisters and mother, Donna, and Tina's siblings as well um, are all coming together with Holly and I believe Holly's children in Florida for an in-person reunion, which I can't even imagine what that will be like. So many emotions because also, I mean, you have, unfortunately, the couple who was murdered. I mean, that's always going to be in the background. Um, But it's also this happiness of, okay, at least Holly is okay. Um, So did they ever find out why the couple was murdered or how or who did it? We have no clue. We have no clue. What I will say is that this cult, um, in particular, this woman's sister identified as Sister Susan and this cult, um, and it is called the Christ Family. That is mentioned in my podcast. They have not been named suspects. They have not been implicated by authorities in any wrongdoing in any way in this crime. Um, the investigation is still open and ongoing to figure out who killed this couple and why. Has the cult been helpful in the investigation at all? Have they been cooperating? So I made contact with a member of the cult, a current member of the cult. And through channels I can't divulge, Sister Susan contacted me and was willing to go on the record and tell her version of events. So I got on a plane in September And I flew to an undisclosed location uh, to interview Sister Susan to find out what happened. And, you know, Sister Susan's recollection of events differed wildly from what the mother said happened. Of course. And, um, you know, Donna Casasanta, Dean's mother, claims that Sister Susan drove in at midnight to the Daytona Speedway where they were to meet with two other women that Sister Susan said, you can't speak to your son. He doesn't want to speak with you. Um, Sister Susan claims that never happened, that she did not meet Donna at midnight. It was the middle of the day, that she was with one other man, not two women, and that she never said, you know, you can't ask about your son. So my interview with Sister Susan just exposed two very different accounts of what happened. Sister Susan claims she never actually met Dean and Tina, that she was told to return the car um, uh, because this group didn't believe in holding on to material possessions, um, and that she drove the car from a camp along the Arizona-California border to Daytona, Florida sometime in 1981. Now, you have to consider the time element in this case 40 years. Right. And I tried to reconcile in my mind, like, how could you have such two totally different recollections? Um, My thought was, well, Sister Susan probably did this routinely, returning material belongings to families. Maybe she's confusing this encounter with another encounter. I don't know. But, you know, my job certainly isn't to solve the case. That's up to investigators. But it was really striking to hear um, two very, very different accounts of what happened with this car. Mm -hmm. 
And so, yeah, that was a totally unexpected interview. I was in the final stages of writing the podcast when I got that phone call, and she was definitely one of the people I wanted to speak to. She was named at the attorney general's press conference back in June as a person of interest, and by person of interest, just somebody who may have knowledge of, you know, Gina Tina's last whereabouts and so forth. Um, so getting her was a really big deal because that moved the story forward. Right. Okay. Well, this brings up a good point because – you say it's not your job to solve the case. That's up to investigators. But as an investigative journalist, you played a significant role in this because you uncovered so many things I'm sure that investigators didn't. What do you think your role was in solving at least part of this case where Holly was discovered? Yeah, I think my role was to track down as many people as I can um, ask as many questions as possible and hold people accountable um, when I feel like uh, I'm not getting the truth or answers. Um, you know, people will listen to that episode and they will hear her interview and they will make up themselves. They will, they will, um, people will hear that interview. They will hear Sister Susan. They will hear Donna Casasanta and they will decide you know, what they think is the truth. And ultimately, investigators will hear that and they will decide the next course of action. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of just the, you know, the person who, you know, wants to just question as many people as I can and get as many people as I can to talk. Because this happened 40 years ago. And maybe somebody out there will hear that interview and they will say, actually, you know, I, I, I know something. Um, the thing about time is that people think, the more time goes by, the less likely we are to solve these cases. Leads shrivel, people move away. Mm -hmm. But there's a flip side to that, and that is that relationships relationships change. People feel emboldened to come forward with knowledge that maybe 40 years ago they were too afraid to talk about. Mm -hmm. And so that is a double-edged sword when it comes to time. And I'm just hoping that somebody out there will hear this story and will come forward with whatever, you know, what even if it's this, the most trivial piece of information to them, will come forward with something that could actually crack. That's a great case. point. And it, we also live in a world now where these podcasts and social media, I mean, they play such a, a big role in solving these things. Because to your point, you could hear something on a podcast and I might have seen a couple if I was, you know, alive back then. I could have been like, oh, I saw a couple being led into the woods at that time, but I didn't think anything of it. I thought they were all together. But then listening to this, it might spark something in someone's mind where you're like, you would have never heard of that. Absolutely. If it hadn't been for your podcast. Absolutely. And I also want to make sure that people know that in this podcast, we explore all theories about what might have happened. You know, here you have two people, Dean and Tina, who are in this cult, who are wearing these white robes and are basically hitchhiking from city to city in the United States back in 1981. And it's entirely possible that this was a random attack by, you know, a stranger. They got into, you know, the wrong car with the wrong person. Um, so there are all kinds of theories here as to what could have happened. Um, the reason I wanted to speak with the cult is because the cult had the car they were part of this cult, and so it was only logical to want to track down members of the Christ family to speak with them. Of course. Uh, I am also curious. Um, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that 
you don't do these things for entertainment. Um, and something you said when you and I were chatting beforehand, kind of you delved into that a little bit more. So what do you think this case means in terms of the bigger picture of mm-hmm. these types of crimes? So this case spotlights a much broader problem in America. And I wasn't even aware of this until I dove into this story, but there are more than 14,000 unidentified human remains in the United States. Mm 14,000. Wow. And according to the National Institute of Justice, um, something like 4,400 unidentified human remains are recovered um, every year. And 1,000 of those individuals remain unidentified after the first year. Mm. And now you have this exploding field of genetic genealogy where people who don't even have a background in law enforcement or a degree in forensics are able to crack these cases by, you know, getting a hold of a DNA profile, uploading it into something like GEDmatch and seeing if it if there's any familial DNA link with other people out there mm-hmm. because people are putting their DNA into these consumer databases, Ancestry.com. So they're able to solve these cases. They're not law enforcement. So you have this, this DNA profile that's uploaded into GEDmatch, which is like, I think, a consortium of like various sites. And then they're able to see if, you know, there's a link a familial DNA link between this DNA profile and someone living in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And then they build out these family trees. And then once they get more sort of specific, they're able to kind of, you know, crack these, they're able to crack these cases. And they're not law enforcement. You don't go to school for genetic genealogy. I mean, like, so that is so fascinating to me that you've got these sort of, I don't want to call them like armchair detectives, but, you know, these you you read almost every day now of a case that's like 50 years old and they were finally able to, you know, identify the person through these consumer DNA databases. Just real quickly for our listeners, because we like to boil things down here on Getting Schooled, but genetic genealogy, can you just quickly define what that is? <laughs> I know quickly is is a hard word because I know it's, yeah, it's, it's um, very complex and complicated. Yes, I can. Um, so genetic genealogy... Um, Okay, so genetic genealogy is basically, and this is my layman's definition, is taking a genetic profile and comparing it to other DNA profiles to basically establish relationships. Okay. Who that person is related to. Because someone's DNA can tell you everything about that person and who they're related to. Right. And this wasn't something you could do 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, It is truly amazing. I mean, the two women who solved this case, Allison Peacock and Misty Gillis, they, you know, Misty, uh, Allison started genetic genealogy as sort of a hobby 10 years ago, and she just became really good at it. Misty is a stay-at-home mom who works for Identifiners International who spends her entire day going through these DNA profiles and trying to link them to, you know, the DNA of other people in these databases. It's just fascinating to me. Um, 
how they're able to do that kind of work. And so you're seeing more and more of these of stories just like Dina and Tina Klaus, where people have been unidentified for decades. I mean, this couple was buried in a potter's field in Houston. And for people who don't know what a potter's field is, a potter's field is a place where they put the remains of people who are either unclaimed or unidentified. And, you know, what was really uh, meaningful, what was really amazing was that the family invited me along in their journey here. And I got incredible access to this family. And so when they traveled from Florida to Texas, I took them to the woods and I showed them where the remains were found because I had the police file. I knew the coordinates. And so they allowed me as a reporter to join them on that trip. And then from there, we went to the cemetery and um, they gave them, you know, the proper memorial they never got a chance to have. Um, and that was incredibly moving and very difficult um, to be a part of because as a reporter, I didn't want to overstep my boundary. I kind of wanted them to have their privacy, mm-hmm. but they wanted me included because they wanted Dean and Tina's story to be told just as much as I did. And I can't even put into words how heart-wrenching it was to see the family walk through the woods and pray over the site where these remains were found. And, you know, had it not been for this man's dog, you know, 40 years ago, who just sort of wandered into the woods and discovered the remains, they might never have been found. Right. I mean, what you're highlighting right now is just the magnitude of kind of the jobs that surround law enforcement, um, job like yours, where you might be searching for answers or you might at least be trying to get people to talk so that they can provide those answers, but you're also playing a role in that family's life and you're making a huge difference in their life. Um, so that's that's really impactful. And I think yeah. what you do is so incredible because without you, they would have less answers. And I mean, I can't imagine not having answers after 40 years and having to go through that. Yeah, and I mean, it's no surprise to anyone to hear that cold cases aren't a priority for law enforcement. They just don't have the resources. The mm-hmm. priority are the, you know, the cases that are that are new and that are, you know, active. I mean, you know, you can't like, you know, Harris County Sheriff's Office has hundreds of unsolved cases. And so cold cases just aren't a priority. And so you kind of have to be that like, you know, squeaky wheel, you know, calling up and saying, like, what's what's the progress here? What are you doing? And I have to say that the the Texas Attorney General's cold case unit is a team of really dedicated investigators who just that is their mission is to crack these cases. And a particular a special shout out to Mindy Monford. Um, she is there, uh, a former prosecutor, and um, she's basically the head of that unit, and she's just relentless in her pursuit um, to solve these cases. And the, the case of Dean and Tina Klaus was the first case for the unit because it's newly formed. They, the Texas Attorney General formed it like a year or two ago. So this oh, was their super first. Super new. Super new. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, obviously being a journalist and being an investigative journalist, they're they're different. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you describe what you do as an investigative journalist, how that's different than just someone? Because journalists also are trying to seek answers, but you really go in depth. Yeah, so I would say that 
investigative journalism um, is not a quick turnaround. It takes months, weeks, months of research and interviewing. And you are really jumping into an investigation in the hopes that your reporting will advance the story. And that is one of the first questions I ask myself when I jump into these cases is, how can I move the story forward? I am not interested in covering a story that we all already know about. We know the outcome. We know how it ends. But being able to take a cold case and being able to use my reporting to advance that story, I get huge satisfaction out of that. Mm. We'll be right back after this. My question to you, I mean, I I obviously am not in your head. This is why I'm asking this question. But as an investigative journalist, we still don't know the answer of Dean and Tina. What exactly happened? Who killed them? Things like that. So is this something that's going to keep you up at night until we learn the answer? I'm not done with this story. I have leads, new leads to pursue. Um. And anybody who knows me knows that when I am so dedicated to a story, I do not let it go. Yes, I will probably have to pivot to other um, stories. Of course, this is news. We have to keep the, you know, wheels moving. But um, I, I am not done with this. I am not done with this investigation. Not at all. Um, I, uh, I continue to get some new leads, and there are at least two people that I still would like to speak with. Mm. Mm -hmm. I won't ask you because I know that you probably want to keep some (laughs) of this, but um, do you think that as an investigative journalist, I guess I should say how as an investigative journalist, do you toe that line? You kind of mentioned before, you didn't want to overstep because this is very serious to the family, Um, but you also want to find answers. So how do you manage that? Yeah, well, I try to approach these stories, like, with the utmost sensitivity. Um, You know, in episode one, I am at the crime scene, and I am am talking about the 1981 case file that is in my possession. Um, But I, I try not to go into such graphic detail for the purposes of sensationalizing. Mm -hmm. This is a family. Um, This is a real family that has to, you know, listen to this. And um, I'm not I'm not interested in putting out details that a, you know, do nothing to move the story forward, um, but only sensationalize it and b actually compromise the investigation because I I would never want to put out details from the crime scene that only investigators and the killer would know because that doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to, you know, approach this as a reporter, but also as a human realizing that, you know, th- these are real families and they have to listen to this. And there are some details that are just not worth sharing. Right. What was your reaction when you got that 1981 case? I don't know if that case? makes sense. <laughs> it did. It definitely did make sense um, because it's true. I mean, we, we live in a world now. I mean, there are specials made out about things. And while they help, sometimes they're sensationalized, like you like you said. Um, but the importance of it is, is just reminding ourselves that we are trying to 
solve a case or you're trying to solve a case. And as a viewer, someone who has no um, background in any sort of investigative anything, you could Mm -hmm. see these things and be like, okay, well, now I want to try to solve it. And the more eyes and the more more facts that you can gather, obviously it helps. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So when you I, I think it's really cool that you they they gave you that case file be the the first journalist that's very unique so what was your reaction when that happened I was kind of stunned I have to say I am definitely used to getting case files with where there's a lot of information redacted you know Mm. you're not looking at human remains and there's a lot of things that are just blackened that you can't read but this was actually uh, a case file that had been digitized and put on a hard drive and was given to me, and it was everything. It was the crime scene photos, photos of the remains, um, the autopsy reports. Um, you know, uh, what was interesting was they ran the dental records of the female victim uh, to try to see if she matched some missing women in the area at the time, and she did not. Um, you know, reading through the injuries um, can say that the crime was absolutely brutal. Um, and so whoever did this wanted that couple dead. Mm. Um, it was absolutely brutal. He he was beaten to death. She was strangled. So they were killed in two, two totally different manners. And um, there really wasn't much evidence left at the crime scene except for a bloody towel, and a pair of green gym shorts, waist 25 inches, which I would guess probably belonged to Tina. And that was it. The fact that there were two different methods, does that suggest that there could be multiple people who might have committed this crime? Yeah, I believe that more than one person was involved in this Mm -hmm. crime, and I think that investigators believe that more than one person was involved in this crime. Um, and it's not clear whether they were killed in the woods or um, their remains were dumped in the woods. I think that what investigators believe is most likely they were killed elsewhere and dumped in the woods. Mm. Um, they were dumped in a part of woods that is on the outskirts of Houston, which is not far from the I-10 ramp. I-10 is a major um, highway that runs from California to Florida. Um, And so that's interesting. Um, But, yeah, there really wasn't much left except for – of evidence except for this bloody towel and the the gym shorts. And so when I learned that they couldn't locate this evidence, that either it had been lost or destroyed, and we don't really have a definitive answer on that yet. Mm -hmm. They're still looking for it. But my gosh, if if they could find that, I mean, that I mean, that could be everything in terms of cracking this case. Well, what we talked about on this podcast, I know, is just scratching the surface of this entire investigation over the last 10 months. Um, I guess I'll end with this question, because, again, I don't want to give too much away. But what should people when they are looking for this podcast, what should they expect a great question. Um, They should expect to learn about a mystery wrapped in another mystery, inside another mystery and another mystery. There are so many layers to this case. It is so much more than just two unsolved murders. 
Um, also, it is a dark story, but there are silver linings in this case and some beautiful things happening in this case. And um, I really think that there's something for everyone in this story. Um, what else? Uh, we, other outlets have covered this story since news broke in June that Holly had been found. But our team, the investigative unit at Fox News, we have advanced this story. Nobody else out there has what we have. We have the first exclusive interview with a woman known as Sister Susan. Um, she is a key figure in this whole story. Nobody else has that. So you will learn something new. You will learn a lot of things, actually. And there, is, there, there are parts of this story that will uplift you and give you hope and uh, faith in humanity. And uh, I really hope that people tune in and I hope they share it with their friends. And, you know, um, the more people that listen, um, the more likely investigators will get that one nugget of information they need to just crack the case. And that happens. It does happen. Mm -hmm. It really does. Wow. Well, what you're doing is absolutely incredible. Uh, I... You are one of the best journalists I've ever met. Just to know the amount of work that you've put in, how much you care, and it, it's such a pleasure talking to you. I know we you've been on before, but I hope to keep having you on, especially when you find out what happens to that couple. Well, I love talking to you because you uh, you ask some of the most thought-provoking questions, actually. You no. ask some things that I didn't Coming even think— Coming from an investigative journalist. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. No, um, you're, you're always so thorough in your questioning, and I can tell how interested you genu genuinely are in the stories that you talk about, so um, I really appreciate that. Well, you make me interested, so we'll end <laughs> with that. Uh, Christina, thanks so much. Thank you, Abby. <laughs> If you missed anything from class, these are my office hours, and here are some top takeaways about this still unsolved mystery. Number one, the Christ family, as well as Sister Susan, are not suspects in the murders of Dean and Tina Klaus. Number two, Holly now lives in Oklahoma with her children and husband, and she will be reuniting with her birth family on November 4th in Florida. Number three, the true story of what happened to Dean Klaus's car has yet to be confirmed, as everyone has conflicting memories of that day. And number four, DNA testing played an instrumental role in linking Dean and Tina Klaus to their daughter, Holly, 40 years later. There is still so much to be discovered about this case, but Christina is a true professional. She's gotten so many answers, answers that that family wouldn't have had otherwise. So I give a huge shout out and a lot of props to her because she's really doing a good thing by trying to provide comfort to this family. You can tune in to her captivating true crime podcast. It's available now on foxnewspodcast.com. But for now, here's a sneak peek of What About Holly? It's very unusual to find two people who disappear at the same time who both go unidentified. And, you know, this was a couple, definitely young, well, assumed to be a couple. They could have been brother and sister, too. But there was something kind of in their gut that was telling the forensic anthropologist that this was probably a couple. What can you say about the brutality of the way in which this couple died? It appeared, you know, that the woman had been strangled and then the man had been beaten to death 
So the thought was perhaps he had been forced to witness her being attacked or had tried to defend her and then been beaten to death. It was clear he'd been beaten savagely. And at one point, I remember the nickname came up of Romeo and Juliet, you know, a couple tied together in death and potentially who were also in love. There were compelling details about, you know, the way they'd been found, too. As you said, they had been in the woods for a while. Even in the winter in Houston, it can be plenty warm. And so the fact that they were already skeletal didn't mean that they had necessarily been there a really long time. But certainly they thought that they'd been there a couple of weeks. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.